Welcome to the Girl Gang Conversations, a podcast that's all about connection, sisterhood, and having conversations that matter. I'm your host, Sarah Stars, and every week I speak to inspiring women about the nitty-gritty of how they live with passion and purpose. We dive deep into our journeys, the obstacles we've overcome, our dreams, what's working for us, and what isn't. We're totally honest about what we're learning, what our daily rituals look like, and what we're struggling with. We don't shy away from the hard stuff, and we really go into it all. Spirituality, personal development, magic, routines, career, friendship, relationships, sexuality, and so much more. The most powerful two words in the English language are, me too, and it's my hope that these conversations help us all feel less alone. This isn't about preachy self-help or self-improvement. It's about self-acceptance and talking about the things that matter to us. Hello, and welcome to the Girl Gang Conversations, episode 59. You can access all of the show notes for this episode at Sarah Stars, that's S-T-A-R-R-S, sarahstars.com slash podcast slash 59. Today's interview is with Emily Nagoski. Emily is the New York Times bestselling author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. She has a PhD in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University and a master's degree in counseling with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. So basically, she knows her stuff. She's also been a sex educator for over 20 years. And Come As You Are, her book, absolutely changed my life and my relationship to my sexuality. It's definitely a must read. Emily and I talked about so much, including the big myths that are damaging so many women's relationships to their sexuality, why everyone's sexuality is totally normal, yes, even yours, and the thing that really bugged her about Fifty Shades of Grey, and it might not be what you think. Hey Emily, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. I've been so looking forward to chatting with you, and something I've been doing recently, before we dive into more about your journey and your work and all of that really good stuff, is playing kind of a little get-to-know-you game, which is by asking about a typical day in your life, or maybe that doesn't exist, but what are the routines? It really doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's the, I think that's the common theme coming up. So what are the routines or rituals that anchor your day? When I'm at home, so I travel about a third of the time, um, but when I'm at home, pretty reliably, I get up between six and seven in the morning spontaneously. I let the dogs out and feed the dogs. I make the coffee, and then I start writing. Um, and I keep writing until one or two in the afternoon, and then I cook and do laundry and things. Uh, and then I usually actually spend time with my marital euphemism. Uh, and then I write again from about five to eight in the evening. Cool. And so is that what you do most of the time you're writing? I guess that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So these days I'm writing full time. Um, there's a, a second book that I'm working on now, which is super, super exciting and really challenging and spectacular. Oh, that's uh, very I, exciting. Yeah. Uh, and I'm writing two different books at the same time, which is actually really wonderful for me. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine that. And are you allowed to give us any sneak peeks of what we can expect from them? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, people would, I'm sure people would love it if I would tell you like my publishers and things oh, would love cool. it. Um, so the nonfiction is the follow-up to Come As You Are. 
uh, and where Come As You Are was about the science of women's sexual well-being, and the conclusion is the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being. The second book is about the science of women's overall well-being. Oh, so wow. there's that. Um, and I'm actually writing it with my sister, who I talk about in Come As You Are pretty reliably. Uh, same publisher, Simon & Schuster. Um, and we just started, so it'll be two years before it comes out, but we're working really hard on it, and I think it's going to be kind of spectacular, actually. Oh, two years is going to be so long to wait, but it'll be well worth it, I'm sure. And what is the other book? The other book? So a thing that has happened... Okay, so I... As I was writing Come As You Are, I had to read Fifty Shades of Grey as research for that book. And um, I, <laughs> I am actually that. a reader of romance novels. So I had a fully open mind when I started reading it. And I ended up throwing against the wall several times and writing five angry blog posts. Because um, here's the thing about that book. Uh, lots of people love it. And that's great. And uh, I have worked in college sexual health and relationship health education for 20 years. And the heroine is a college senior when the book starts. And so if Anastasia had come to my office and talked about her relationship, which is the kind of thing that happens all the time, I would have been mandated under federal law to report that conversation to campus police because she would have been telling me about her stalker. And that was really not okay mm -hmm. for me. Um, and then there were also some really appalling inaccuracies in the way sexuality was represented. Um, we're probably going to talk about arousal non-concordance. Yes, um, <laughs> so, so we'll talk about the, the arousal non-concordance problem in Fifty Shades of Grey. But basically, I was so mad. I wrote these five angry blog posts. I was like, there's got to be a way to write you know, the coming of age, sexual awakening of a college senior t at the hands of a man who's older, more experienced, more powerful, but in a way that is feminist and sex positive and not least medically accurate. So people were like, money where your mouth is, Emily. So I wrote it. Um, and I sent it to my literary agent kind of as a joke. Like, you know how I said I was going to write a romance novel? I wrote a romance novel. And <laughs> then she sold it in a two-book deal. So I'm now a romance author. Um, the first one is out now as of July. Uh, it's called How Not to Fall. The second one comes out in December. It's called How Not to Let Go. And it's a duology. So the first book has a cliffhanger ending. And then the second book has the happy ending. Uh, so what I'm doing now is writing the next romance novel, as well as the fiction, as well as the nonfiction. Oh my gosh, that's the best story. I love that. So, yeah. And it's fabulous. Like, it's very good for my brain to be writing fiction at the same time. I don't know how recently you have read David Copperfield. Not in a long time. Not, like, maybe ever. Um, so there's this Charles, book, Charles Dickens book, David Copperfield, and there's a character named Mr. Dick who keeps trying to write this big piece. And every time he starts writing, he starts writing about Charles I. It's just this thing. And so he can't ever write anything productive because he just goes to Charles I. And so the strategy he learns, I don't know if this is remotely useful or interesting to anybody, but what he does is he starts, anytime he notices Charles I sneaking up, he just goes to this other sheet of paper and scribbles it over there. Um, and so eventually he can write productively on the one project because he has a place to store all of the Charles I that interferes. Um, so for me, writing fiction, that's where I put all the Charles I. Like, 
emerges in my head. That really only makes sense if you've read David Copperfield. Sorry. No, I mean, I have read it, and it was quite a long time ago, though, when I went through a, a Charles Dickens obsession in my younger years. But I think it is kind of like a useful metaphor for lots of things when we're struggling with productivity or, like, our monkey mind, like, having some outlet for those things that keep popping up. Like, obviously, yeah. they want to be part of us or with us for some reason. Yeah. And trying to suppress them only makes them pop up. That's actually a phenomenon called the ironic process. So instead, you offload it into some productive project. You turn it into something useful, meaningful. Mm. So this is going to be kind of a big question. You can choose however you want to chunk it off and answer. Can you just tell us a little bit about your journey and what initially led you to doing this work that you're doing? Yes, it starts incredibly banally. I, uh, so I was a big nerd in high school, obviously. Uh, and when I got to college, I knew I'd be going to grad school for something. I had no idea what. Uh, and so I thought, well, I need to volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good grad school candidate. Um, and so I asked the guy on my floor, hey, what volunteer work can I do on campus? And he was like, come be a peer health educator with me. So I, I'm sure, okay, peer health education sounds great. So I applied and I got accepted and I started getting trained and then went into residence halls to talk about sexual consent and condoms and contraception and all the things. And to that, I gradually added doing work around sexual violence prevention education and sexual violence response. And um, while I was in college, I, I majored in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy. And my, my goal by the time I finished my degree was to be a clinical neuropsychologist working with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke. Um, and even though I loved the academic intellectual work I was doing, the work I was doing as a sex educator made me like who I am as a human being in a way that the academic work just couldn't. And so that is the path I chose instead. I ended up at Indiana University, Indiana University, let me say that more slowly, um, for my master's degree in counseling psychology. That's the degree I chose because that's the degree that my supervisor, when I was a peer educator, had. It turns out not to be a very immediately useful degree for a sex educator, um, but it turned out to be the degree that I, as a human being, needed. Um, my, I have, a, I have an identical twin sister, her name is Amelia, uh, and she's a choral conductor. Her master's degree is in choral conducting. Uh, and one day I noticed, huh, we both got master's degrees in how to listen and have feelings. Mm. That might mean something. <laughs> so I stay, uh, by the time I got to the end of that degree, I realized being a nerd who likes to be in charge meant having a PhD. So I stayed in school and got a, a stayed at IU, got a PhD in health behavior um, through the School of Public Health, specializing my in my master's degree. My clinical internship was at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. Uh, my dissertation was supervised by Eric Janssen, associate scientist at the Kinsey Institute. I got really lucky in all of the opportunities that I had at Kinsey. It's a spectacular, spectacular place to work. Uh, and then I got a job at Smith College as the director of wellness education, which is really um, a lovely, beautiful place to be. Uh, and I started teaching a class called Women's Sexuality. And it was that semester, it was the fall of 2010. Uh, you know, I'd been teaching human sexuality for 15 years at that point. And um, that class, there's 180 students, which this is a campus of 2,600 students altogether. 
So it's this enormous class for this campus. And on the first day, a student, I was doing my usual anatomy lecture, just my usual here, anatomy, parts is parts. Um, and a student raised her hand and said, Emily, what's the evolutionary origin of the hymen? <laughs> and I was 15 years, I had never even wondered what the evolutionary origin of the hymen was. So I knew in that moment, this was not going to be an ordinary semester of teaching the content that I've been teaching for 15 years. And it was not, they kicked my ass. It was amazing. And I just shoehorned in like the most advanced science that I could justify into this 100 level class on human sexuality. Uh, and so after all this hard work on the final exam, the last question was just tell me one important thing you learned. You can have your two points. The two points mattered a lot. So you have the two points. Just take the question seriously. Tell me anything that was really important to you. And I thought they were going to say stuff like the evolutionary biology or arousal nonconcordance or any of that other stuff, sexual fluidity, attachment. Uh, and no, more than half of my 187 students just wrote something like, I learned I'm normal. I'm normal. Just because I'm different from other people doesn't mean I'm broken. I'm normal. Um, and I, so I was sitting in my office grading final exams with tears in my eyes, yeah. feeling like something important had happened in this class. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted to do it again. And I wanted to do it in a way that people who didn't have access to Smith College could have access to. So that's the day that I decided to write a book. Uh, a mere four and a half years later, there was Come As You Are. Um, and I, I think it has done the thing that I wanted to do, which is communicate the science that allows women to know their own sexuality in a way that is free of all the cultural baggage and just truly the way their sexuality lives inside their body, owning it and accepting it as it is, knowing that it's normal and healthy. Absolutely. I mean, it's this book that I just recommend to everyone, I think male or female, um, if you want to have sex with women or you are a woman, you should read it. It's it's just life-changing, really. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so I want to come back to that idea that we're all normal. But before that, I was curious to ask you a little bit about what was your relationship to sex like before you started this work? Like, how have things changed for you as a result of learning the science that you lay out and Come As You Are? I wish I had a better answer to this. Um I, one of the reasons I got invested in doing this work is because my own sexuality is in the like 10% of women whose sexuality seems to conform with the androcentric model of like spontaneous desire, orgasms with intercourse, arousal concordance, all these things that are myths for the majority of women were actually true for me. So when I started learning the science and finding out that that's not true for a lot of people, it in, instantly I knew like, okay, so if that weren't who I am, I would be really angry mm -hmm. to be learning that what was going on with me was actually normal, but I was taught that it was broken. Um, so my own sexuality, what's been useful is as I've gotten older, I'm 39 now, uh, geez. Uh, and my sexuality has changed as everyone's sexuality changes over time. So the main thing that's been valuable for me is being able to observe those changes and know that they don't mean that anything is going wrong. It just means, oh, look, my body is changing because that's what happens to human beings over time. The ones who get old are the lucky ones. If we're old enough to observe changes in our sexuality, it means we're still here mm -hmm. and able to experience any sort of pleasure. 
in our lives. And that's spectacular. So for me, it's been about uh, being able to notice and embrace changes. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't think we need to have, you know, like a, a dramatic story to, to have the information you've laid out be still useful, but that's really interesting. But a lot of, a lot of sex educators really do come from a place of like, there were things going wrong and I was looking for answers for me. Uh, and it was for me, not about looking for answers for me. It was finding out that the answers I had didn't work for everybody and really being motivated to be like, just because you don't match the thing, you get to feel as good about yourself as everybody else does. I think that's really commendable though. Cause you can kind of understand um when you're looking for those answers for yourself obviously you're really impassioned about it but like good on you for seeing that there was an issue with the way things were being presented and even though maybe it didn't totally relate to you um and the way you were experiencing sexuality that you're like yeah no this really needs to get out there this is really damaging and i also one of the things i noticed when i was um, many people have had experiences like this where you're the person in the room who feels totally comfortable talking about genitals in front of a group of your peers. And everybody else in the room is like, genitals, I can't do it. And you're like, I don't understand. What's the matter with you people? Why can't we just talk about it? Vulva, vagina, penis, scrotum. What are we, why are, we, why are you giggling? Elbow, toe, eyeball, vagina. It's all fine. Um, and the people who have that experience of like, why I don't, why can't we all just talk about this shit? Those are the people who become sex educators and sex therapists. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so just like the people in your class, one of the biggest things I took away from reading your book is that we're all normal and that no matter what's going on with our bodies and our sexualities, it's normal and that we all have the same parts put together in different ways. And I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit on that idea and what it means. Absolutely. So one of the, the, before I wrote the book, I started writing a blog called The Dirty Normal, and I learned a lot about how to communicate the science of these ideas um, through the comments people left. And when I would talk about variety and all the different ways people experience, oh, can you hear my dog walking there? Oh, he's, got okay. a, he's got a tummy <laughs> ache today. Um, anytime I talked about a, a way of experiencing sexuality that was just one specific way, there would always be comments about, but what about all these other ways? And like, yes, yes. And this one blog post is about this one way. So it was really crucial, obviously, to people that when we talk about sexuality, it feel consistently inclusive. And that even though people have different kinds of experiences, all the different kinds of experience are normal and included, no matter what we're talking about. Um, and when I was, it was as I was writing the genitals chapter that I realized the genitals are a metaphor for everything else about our sexuality because male body parts and female body parts, as we categorize them biologically based on, we could talk about whether or not those categories make sense, but here they are, these two categories of human beings who are born and we look at the package of stuff between their legs and go, it's a boy or it's a girl. And it doesn't matter what we're looking at. It's all the same parts organized in different ways, right? So on on the male organization, the, it's a boy configuration. We've got like the stretchy, men have this stretchy uh, external body part where hair grows, right? That's the scrotum. And the female bodies, the it's a girl bodies have uh, the stretchy external thing that where hair grows and that's the labia. And if you look at a guy's scrotum, you'll see a seam that's called the scrotal raphe running down the center of the scrotum, which is where his scrotum would have developed into labia instead if something had been just a little bit different in the hormones or chromosomes 
his body would have developed into the more female organization, right? It's the same basic hardware, just organized in slightly different ways. Head of the penis, head of the clitoris, right? It's all just the same parts, organized in different ways. None of them are better or worse. It's just different. I think that's... And it turns out the same thing is true for the mechanism in our brain that governs sexual response too. That is also the same. And then there's the cultural messages. Everybody gets some combination of cultural messages and everybody's experience of cultural messages is going to be different, even though, so I might, again, identical twin sister, we grew up in the same household with the same parents exposed to the same media. And by the time we got to adolescence, we had two entirely different culturally constructed ideals of what a sexual woman was supposed to be like because our brains were inherently different, because even though we're identical twins, our lives were still separated from each other. From the moment of birth, we were exposed to different kinds of worlds. Mm, That's so important, I think, to understand. And I love how you talk about in the book that the kind of overarching view of female sexuality is that it's like male light. Because I remember um, studying philosophy in university and learning about uh, Aristotle's theories about female genitalia basically that they were fucked up penises that we kept them inside of ourselves because we were embarrassed and I was just like so angry at the time like I hate Aristotle now and yeah um obviously that's literally the first sentence of the book is about how just even the name pudendum is about to make ashamed Mm. okay really yeah and obviously it's had this massive trickle down effect like it's it's hard to even conceptualize how much that's just touched everything and you go into so deeply embedded so much detail about how that's just not true that female sexuality is a different beast and from woman to woman it's a different I mean beast isn't even the nicest word but a different story a different experience um and that's just even just knowing that alone I think is incredibly healing that people are all different from each other and that there is this very sort of deeply ingrained idea that women are slightly broken versions of men. It's very old and it extends beyond our sexuality to sort of everything about being a woman is like being a man, only worse. Yeah. That for me combined with the sort of like the foundational idea of patriarchy that women's bodies are in the public domain. They are the possessions of the men who own them, who could do whatever they want to them. The combination of those two things that you're my possession and you're sort of like a fractured version of what you should be is built into everything that women experience in our lives. God knows in the, in the election in the United States right now. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely everything, all of the institutions, like we haven't yet caught up with the, with the perceived equality to actually have institutions that, that reflect that. And there's a a frustration I have in the way that people get educated around uh, psychology and social issues that they tend to begin with the history of the field, which sort of lays a foundation as if what's historically been true, it just feels like really important that we remember these ideas. Like, it feels really important that we all remember Freud and the impact that he's had on our field when it would be really good if we could learn all the shit that has proven Freud wrong and then go back and be like, and then there was this dude Freud who had some really interesting, important insights. And then there was a whole lot of crazy fucked up bullshit. Yeah. Isn't this crazy fucked up bullshit? 
good thing we know now that none of that was true because if you heard that before you found out none of that was true you might have believed that there was like some important difference between an orgasm that you have from vaginal stimulation versus an orgasm you have from clitoral stimulation mm, yeah this kind of deferential to the you know to the people of the past and obviously like i understand people's desire to like recognize where ideas have come from but you're right if you're not seeing the fact that well actually all of those ideas as much as other ideas must have been based on them we can now see that that whole lineage is quite fucked up and damaging and wrong Mm. yeah so another metaphor that obviously goes throughout the whole book and that i thought it might be really helpful to talk about before we dive into other stuff because it's so kind of fundamental uh is the garden metaphor and i love how this applies to sexuality, but it feels like it could apply to anything in life and personal development. So I wonder if you could explain a little bit about what your garden metaphor is. Yes, this is, I'm, I'm quite proud of the garden metaphor because uh, I developed it with a student who was uh, getting a degree in English and has since gone on to become a professional poet. So I'm feeling real confident about my garden metaphor, actually. So Savannah Grant is the poet to look out for. Um, so basically what it is, is that on the day you're born, you're given this little plot of rich and fertile soil, this garden of yours. And on that day, your family of origin and your culture of origin begin to plant ideas about bodies and safety and sex and gender and love. And they uh, begin to cultivate the garden and they teach you how to take care of the garden. And gradually, by the time you get into adulthood, you've taken on responsibility for tending this garden. Now, if you're lucky, your family and your culture have planted really beautiful, healthy, thriving things, and all you have to do is sort of harvest and weed. Uh, And it might turn out that your family or your culture have planted some really toxic shit, and you now have the task of going row by row and figuring out what you want to keep and what you want to pull out and throw in the compost heap to rot. And it is no damn fair if you have this work to do because you didn't get to choose any of the shit that got planted in your garden. Nobody asked permission. Nobody waited until you could give consent and say, hey, would it be okay with you if I started planting ideas about the ways your sexuality is inherently a source of shame and guilt and disgustingness? Or like, Nobody waited and and asked your permission before they started planting self-critical thoughts about your body and the ways that the shape and size of your body was always and forever going to be fundamentally imperfect and unlovable. Would that be okay with you? Nobody asked you that question. So there it all is. And we each, with our little plot of garden, have the unfair task, but also the opportunity to figure out what it was that got planted in our heads that we want to keep and what we want to get rid of. And my favorite thing about the garden metaphor, actually, is that my little plot of land is adjacent to your little plot of land, which is adjacent to all the other plots of land. So that when I, for example, keep pulling and re-pulling the invasive weeds of body self-criticism and sexual shame, I'm not just pulling it from my own garden. I'm also weakening them in the ways that they'll grow in the gardens adjacent to me. So as each one of us cultivates our own personal sexual well-being, we're creating a space that makes it just a little bit easier for the people around us to cultivate their own sexual well-being. Yeah. And that's the garden metaphor. It's beautiful, and it, um, it makes so much sense, and it's so helpful for starting to think about 
you know, what kind of garden we want to have and what we need to do to pull out some of those weeds. And I'm curious, hearing you say that um, brought up a question for me. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, you know, for parents out there, people who are thinking to have, thinking about having families, do you have any thoughts on cultivating healthy sex gardens, if you will, in children? Mm -hmm. Like what is it, what are the kind of healthy ideas? I mean, obviously um, not telling them shameful things about their body, but do you have any thoughts about helping helping families do that, helping children understand their bodies in healthier ways. There are experts on this particular topic. There are some wonderful books uh, about it. Um, Sex is a Funny Word is a new one that I really, really love. Um, And what it comes down to ultimately is reckoning with your own shit, Mm. coming to real terms with the stuff that got planted in your garden, pulling it out before you start imposing it. Because hardly any adult caregivers deliberately decide, I want my child to feel ashamed of her body. I want my child to experience guilt and pain when she is sexual. We, we don't. We want our children to be joyful and confident in their bodies. That's what adult caregivers want for their children. Um, and we so we don't even realize what we're doing. It's just automatic. It's what got planted in our gardens because it's what got planted in our adult caregivers' gardens because it's what got planted in their adult caregivers' gardens. We're not. It's just automatic. Um, And unless we take the time to begin examining that and thinking, how how do I want my child to be as a sexual person? What do I want their relationship with their body and their sexuality to be like? Um, And am I willing to uproot that shit from my own garden so that I don't pass it on? That's the foundation of it. I have a friend who's a sex educator and also a mother of two small daughters. Uh, And she is like the perfect example So she has the kind of household where a thing that gets said is we don't touch our vulvas at the dinner table. Teaching her kids, like, the boundaries of, like, it's your body, it totally belongs to you, you get to choose what you do with it, and there's a time and a place for that particular kind of behavior. Just as you don't play with the dolls at the dinner table, you also don't play with your vulva at the dinner (laughs) table. I love that. Yeah. And but a lot of people would feel really uncomfortable well, doing and saying like things like saying earlier, that. um, some people are comfortable just saying vulva in general, right? I had a funny thing happen the other day. I for the last year I've got my last week at, with him next week before I go full time with my freelance work, but I've been nannying a boy two days a week who's just turned two. And I have a uh badge on my leather jacket that says cuterus and has a picture of a uterus and fallopian oh. tubes, but he was like looking at all the buttons and his mom was right there. And he's like saying, what's this one? What's this one? And then I had to be like, it's a uterus. And like, look at his mom a little bit like, do we use words like that in this house? I assume we do based on how progressive and kind of um, open they are. But she's like, oh yeah, that's a good thing for him to know. <laughs> but some people would so not be okay. Like as if it's a dirty word. I mean, I didn't even really know what my uterus was, that it was the same thing as my womb for, till fairly recently as an adult woman. Um, yeah, but it makes sense that we're you know people can have a lot of discomfort around talking about these things with their yeah. kids, like you say, if they haven't done that work previously. And it turns out there's not actually a relationship between uh, political progressiveness and not being squicked out by uh, sexual things. Hmm. The yeah. only exception is sexual orientation. Okay, that's really interesting. So, so people who are politically progressive are just as likely to go. Oh, you can't say that when you talk about 
genitals in front of a child. Uh, somebody tweeted me recently that after they read Come As You Are, they saw their brother, they're both adults, changing his baby daughter's diaper. And once she was all clean and he was changing her diaper, she reached the little, you know, baby daughter reaches down to touch her genitals. And the brother, the dad, says, oh, don't touch that. Mm. Why? Yeah. It's hers. Yeah. Just like from like the very earliest days, girls in particular are taught not to go down there, that it doesn't actually belong to them. Yeah. It's not theirs to do with as they please. And, you know, it's, I think it's easy for people who have been thinking, you know, read your book and been thinking about these kind of things a lot to think, oh my gosh, that's really damaging. Like, you know, maybe you remember something like that happening in your own life or, or But we whatever. do it so reflexively. Yeah. But I think, yeah, so many people would not... They just have this thing about like, oh, that's not polite. That's not polite. Um, and yes. not thinking, oh, that's actually going to stick with her. That's really formative. And yeah, yeah. it's absolutely lovingly intended, right? Mm. And so I'm wondering if we can just for a minute or however big this needs to be. I get that it's a big question, but I'm just wondering when people realize that they've got these weeds in their gardens, like how do you suggest they start pulling them out. Is it quite dependent on what the weeds are? Is there a starting point if you recognize, like, I've got a lot of sexual shame or I feel really like some things about my body are disgusting. How do we start excavating those weeds and, and not letting them go back in our garden? Yeah, it does really depend on what the weeds are and how extensive the damage is and how deeply entwined they are with everything else, right? Because if you've got weeds that are all tangled up with the healthy stuff you want to keep, you got to go really carefully. You can't just like stick the shovel in the earth and dump everything out and start from scratch. Maybe you want to be really gentle and careful. When people have trauma in their history or child neglect, there's a, an instrument called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, ACEs survey, um, which assesses a combination of exposure to violence, um, whether observing or experiencing, uh, as well as neglect being ignored, which can be just as damaging as being actively abused. Um, so when people have pretty high levels of adverse childhood experiences or some explicit trauma exposure, it's important that they go really gently and not just sort of like dive in and dig everything out. Mm. Um, because those plants are tenuous and the more gentle you are with them, the more of what you like, you can keep. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the starting place is, is noticing uh, a thing that is, so, uh, okay, so there's a brain mechanism, it's called the dual control mechanism. There's two parts, dual control mechanism, two parts. One is the sexual accelerator or the gas pedal, and one is the brake. Um, and the sexual accelerator notices all the sexually relevant information in the environment, everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as sexually relevant. And it sends a turn on signal. That's the piece most of us are familiar with in, in terms of our sexual functioning and the way we respond to sexual stimulation. At the same time that it's functioning, there's also this break, which notices all the good reasons not to be turned on right now, right? Everything you see hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. And it sends the turn off signal. So arousal is the combined process of turning on all the ons and turning off all the offs. Um, and there's worksheets in the books. You can also download them for free on my blog um, that ask people to think about, like, what are some of the things that hit your accelerator? And what are the things that you notice hit the brake? So you start noticing what are the things that are hitting my brake? And it might be, I mean, 
It can respond to in the moment stimulation, like your grandmother walks in the room and the brakes gets, unless that's what you're into and that's totally fine too, but the brakes get slammed on in the middle of that. And maybe you wanna keep that as a thing that stimulates your brake, but maybe you're in the middle of a sexual experience and instead of paying attention to the pleasurable things happening in your body, you notice that you're sort of thinking about the shape or size or appearance of your body. There's a phenomenon called spectatoring, where instead of noticing pleasure, you're sort of paying attention to like the what your facial expression is and how your boobs are hanging and the cottage cheese on the back of your thigh. You're sort of m monitoring your body and worrying about it instead of experiencing pleasure. And is worrying about your body hitting the accelerator? No, for most people, it's totally hitting the brake. So you notice that that's happening and you identify it as a thing that's hitting the brake that you would prefer not to be hitting the brake. So step number one is just to notice those things. And step number two is to be as non-judgmental as you possibly can. A, thing, a mistake that people make when they're trying to go through this process is they'll notice those things and then they'll get really frustrated with themselves. Be like, ah, oh, there's those self-critical thoughts again. Darn it all, I hate these self-critical thoughts. And is hating and judging the self-critical thoughts hitting the accelerator or is it hitting the brake? It just further hits the brake. So you need to be just be like, oh, look, there's those self-critical thoughts about my body. There's that shame about my genitals. There's that worry and concern about like the smell or the fluids or the hair or the whatever. There it is. Yep, that's totally the culture I got exposed to. Yep, that's what I got taught from before I could speak. Yep, there it is. And then you let those thoughts, you put them on a shelf over one side temporarily. You can worry about those things literally any other time that you want to. Just temporarily right now, you're going to put them over here and return your attention to the pleasurable sensations happening in your body. And of course, like more of those thoughts will arise and just be like, yep, it's, um, uh, it's like, it's, I don't know if you've ever made jam or mm -hmm. jelly. Um, you it sort of it boils and you sort of skim off the scum. Yeah. This is this is the process of like allowing the boiling to happen and skimming off the scum and just like leaving it over there. Yeah, that's such a good way to think about it. I found that part of the book so helpful. And to, you had the quiz in Come As You Are as well. Then realizing that I had. Um, sensitive brakes and a sensitive accelerator oh so there's like literally this tug of war going on in my brain it's like yeah that actually explains a lot yeah um, and sometimes that awareness pretty rare combination too yeah and it was kind of like none of them were like the most extreme of the sensitivity they were all just kind of like at the lower end of the sensitive bracket so yeah but it was just yeah it was just really interesting having that awareness well obviously there's stuff to do after like you were really great at laying out some ways that you can start to think about you know taking the brake off and putting the accelerator on and all of those things but even just knowing that about yourself so you don't mm -hmm. feel and I think this is so true of so many things but just realizing oh yeah like this is a thing I'm not crazy this is like a biological thing yeah. that's part of There's who a I brake. am yeah and mm. it it takes us somehow we've gotten to a place where the cultural default is that we should always want sex all the time in every context and always be ready and able to respond sexually no matter what's going on in our relationship in our lives or around us in the moment, like the, the default is always yes, response, pleasure, in, uh, which doesn't take into account the fact that it's actually a lot of situations in our lives where it is quite adaptive for us not to be particularly interested in sex. Mm -hmm. well, so I mean... the break, yeah, normalizing the break, like 
of course you don't want that. I was sitting at a conference lunch table uh, talking about, because I talk about this everywhere I go, um, and a woman who had a really young child said, could you please explain this breaks thing and the context sensitivity to my husband? Because he'll come up to me in the morning when I'm changing. This is a lot of baby changing stories. I don't know why. Baby changing the baby and says, hey, do you want to have sex tonight? And I'm literally up to my wrists in poop. And if you ask me then, the answer is always no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just the fact that, like, so many of us are so stressed out all of the time and thinking mm-hmm. about how that hits our brakes was so interesting to me. I have talked on the podcast before about how I, you know, really thought I had a healthy relationship with sex and then had a massive period of burnout last year and kind of lost most of my sex drive and started to experience a lot of obviously kind of latent feelings of sexual shame but reading the book and realizing how the break can work thinking like yeah if my body had gone into this period of constantly being in that sympathetic uh, nerve system fight or flight place like constantly being in a state of stress like why would my body think it was a good time to have sex like why would yeah, I get of course aroused? not yeah you're being chased by a lion that's yeah. not the right time Totally. And so many of us are being chased by the lion right now until we kind of... Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, So interesting. And so I'm curious, you know, I was reading an article recently that I think stated, and I think it was an American study that stated um, up to 43, I think, I'm not sure about that, but 43% of women um, feeling like they're experiencing some type of sexual dysfunction. Yeah, no, that number has been thoroughly and profoundly debunked. Okay. That's bullshit nonsense uh, medicalization. I mean, there's a whole political, oh my God, I could talk about that number for a long time. I have a lot of feelings in response to that number. That's not what they said. It's not that 43% of women report feeling like they're experiencing sexual dysfunction. It's that 43% of women reported that there were some occasions when they didn't want sex. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. And this was a study funded by the pharmaceutical industry that was subsequent like they didn't have the declaration of the funding in the original thing they had to have an addition an addendum added i would add that the people who did the research did not frame it as 43 percent of women sexual dysfunction they framed it as 43 percent of women reported experiencing occasions when they were not interested in having sex which is not dysfunctional that's just not wanting sex sometimes because you're tired right like that's not that's not a disease being tired, yeah. not a disease. Um, so no, that's not actually right. Uh, lifetime prevalence of any form of sexual dysfunction, it's really sort of impossible to have a number because it changes so much and reporting and there's so many different kinds of sexual dysfunction or problems with sexuality and things that we have previously counted as sexual dysfunction, we now know are not dysfunctional at all. Responsive desire is the classic example of this. So no. Not, not 43%. That was what I was going to ask, because I was so curious, like, um, you know, what I would have, like, maybe felt like I was experiencing sexual dysfunction, realizing that I was actually just going through this season yeah. of my life where sex didn't really make sense and where, you know, where I had been experiencing a lot of spontaneous desire, now I was experiencing responsive desire. Or even yeah. if women were, you know, thinking that, oh, like, that only they, they needed, that they weren't understanding arousal non-concordance. I was just, like, it just felt mm-hmm. like such a... You know, and obviously there's a lot of times when studies get, like, then taken on by the media and they start meaning all of these things that they never yep. really were proving. Especially when there's a drug company sending out press releases, totally. which is what happened in this case. Actually, yeah. have you seen Orgasm, Inc.? No. It's this wonderful documentary by Liz Kanner. I think it came out in 2011. Um, and it talks explicitly about the ways this study got 
co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry and turned into this giant media thing where now people are worried about their sexuality when they weren't before. Mm. Yeah. So highly recommend that Orgasm Inc. Okay. INC. We'll definitely check that out. Um, so you just mentioned that a you know a big thing when people mistaking um, responsive desire as sexual dysfunction. So I was wondering if you could just mm-hmm. explain a little bit what that means. Sure, absolutely. So the way most of us get taught sexual desire works is where you just sort of, I mean, nothing in particular is going on, but all of a sudden you just have this uh, this feeling like you would you would like some sexy times. That's um, Erica Moen, the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, draws it as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Kaboom! You just have the, oh, I would like to get the sexy times. Oh. Um, and so that motivates you to go and get the sexy times, and then you feel great because you got the sexy times. That's called, in the research, spontaneous desire, and it is absolutely a 100% normal way to experience sexual desire. And... It's not the only way to experience sexual desire. There's this other thing that gets called responsive desire in the research because spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure. Responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So this is where you're just sort of like sitting on the couch, flipping through channels on the whatever, and your certain special someone just starts like, you know, like maybe like touching your arm or rubbing your neck and your brain's like, oh, that feels really nice. And then your certain special someone starts talking about romantic, sexy, lovely things and your brain receives that and is like, yeah, I really, really like this person and I like the way I'm being touched right now. This is very pleasurable. And then eventually it sort of activates this thing of like, how about maybe some sexy times? How about that? Wouldn't that be good? It's called responsive desire. Um, And the way it works normally in people's lives, I had a friend who describes it as like, you know, this really reminds me that sometimes you just like, you put all the toys in the toy box, you trudge up the stairs and you lie down in the bed and it's Saturday night. And so you put your body in the bed with your partner and you remember that you like this person and you like the sex and you didn't have to be like hot and horny, ready to go. You just have to really enjoy it instead of being worried about the like wanting it out of the blue. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. There's this great metaphor. Can I just, uh, there's this, I, after I wrote Come As You Are, I traveled around, I talked to a bunch of people and I absorbed this wonderful metaphor from a sex therapist in New Jersey named Christine Hyde. The way she talks about responsive desire with her clients is she uses this analogy of a party. So if you, you know, your best friend invites you to a party at her house and you say, yes, of course, because it's your best friend and it's a party. And then as the date approaches, you start going like, oh man, we're just going to be all this traffic. We have to find childcare. I got to put on pants on a Friday. I just, I can't do it. And so you're kind of like, oh, am I going to go? But you go because you said you would. It's your friend. It's a party. And you end up having a great time at the party, Right. Yeah. If you're having fun at the party, you are doing it right. And no amount of wanting to go to a party will make the party worth going to. So which matters more? The wanting to go to parties or the fun that you have at it? That's so great. Yeah. And it's, there's like this real idealization, I think, of right of like the woman who's like initiating sex and, and you know, wanting sex all the time and it's just sure who doesn't want to be like wanted by their partner to be like braved it's it's a beautiful delightful thing and it is not the only normal way totally it's like it's super added it's extra bonus special fun and that you can create misunderstanding if if you don't realize like what your desire is 
like. Yeah, because absolutely spontaneous desire gets privileged in our culture. We're taught that it is the way. And if you don't have that kind of desire, then you have low desire or hypoactive sexual desire disorder. The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, actually transitioned from HSDD, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, as their diagnosis for low desire to this other thing. They got rid of HSDD and were like, that's not a disease. It turns out this other thing, FSIAD, female sexual interest and arousal disorder, because they were like, it turns out responsive desire is normal as long as it, what matters more. So my shorthand is pleasure is the measure. Mm. Pleasure is the measure of your sexual well-being. As long as you are liking the sex you are having, that's how you know you're having a good sex life. And pleasure is complicated, which we can talk about in a second. But pleasure matters more than how much you want it or how often you do it or who you do it with or what positions or even how many orgasms you have. None of those are a way to assess your sexual well-being. Whether or not you like the sex you are having is the way to assess it. Yeah. And so, you know, with pleasure as the measure, and there might be some people who would say, but they just don't find sex pleasurable ever, that they don't have any even responsive desire to sex. And are there some of us who are just wired to not be interested? Uh, it turns out about 1% of the population identifies as asexual. These are folks who, remember the, the sensitivity of the brakes and gas? Yeah. Asexual folks are much more likely to report having much lower sensitivity accelerators. Their gas pedals, it just takes a lot of stimulation before their brain's actively interested in anything sexual. There might be no context that they encounter in their daily lives mm -hmm. that really activate any sort of sexual interest. Most of the time... When people experience lack of desire as a dysfunction, it's not because there's not enough stimulation to the gas pedal. Sometimes that's true, but most of the time it's because there's too much stimulation to the brake, like the thing you were talking about of just being so stressed out and exhausted and that's hitting the brake and keeping everything shut off. It doesn't matter how much stimulation you put on the gas pedal. If the brake is slammed on, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, totally. And so... Um, something that we've brought up a couple of times, so I'd love before we wrap up, if we could chat about it a little bit, is uh, what arousal non-concordance is, because I think that's sure. another way that women could totally be seeing this ideal out there of what, you know, we're supposed to get so wet and all of these things, and that means mm -hmm. we're turned on. Um, and so this could be like a great PSA for buying a nice lube as well. So yeah, if you yes. just explain a little bit about what not arousal non-concordance is and, you know, the fact that it does not mean we're broken. Sure. So I've been saying all along that the accelerated response to sexually relevant stimulation, it, it turns out that uh, just because something is sexually relevant doesn't necessarily mean that it's wanted or liked or interesting in any way. It's just sexually relevant. Uh, and because, I mean, and that makes perfect sense because a thing can be hitting the accelerator. Yep, that's sexually relevant stimulation, but also be hitting the brake at the same time. Which would keep you, which would be like, and no, thank you. Just because it's sexually relevant, no thanks. So the way they measure this, you go into a laboratory and they hook you up to machines that measure your genital blood flow. Um, and then they give you a dial to measure your subjective arousal, how turned on you feel. And they show you every, all the porns, many porns, all the kinds of porn you can imagine. So this is like mainstream porn and lesbian porn and gay porn and feminist porn and violent porn and vintage porn and all the porns. Plus they show you videos of bonobo chimpanzees copulating, right? So like everything. And it turns out genitals will respond to, female genitals in particular, we don't know why, will respond to even vaguely 
sexually relevant stimulation, like these bonobo chimpanzees, genitals respond not as much as to the human porn, but significantly above baseline. And like nobody, no one, the way you see this reported in the media is usually like, all women are bisexual. Yeah. You can tell because their genital blood flow responds when they're exposed to lesbian porn, even when they're heterosexual. See? As if their genital blood flow tells us something more meaningful about their sexual identity and sexual desire than, you know, the woman herself can tell. You know how I know not all women are bisexual? Can you tell I have feelings about this? You know how I know not all women are bisexual? I have talked to some women who say that they're not bisexual. (laughs) Yeah. Like, just let's believe women when they say what their experience is and not assume that they are definitely lying or in denial or just so disconnected from their sexuality. And God knows it's true that we disconnect women culturally from their sexuality. And it might be that they're interested in things that they're not talking about. But women know. Women can report they've done other things where they're like, yeah, my genitals responded, but yuck. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we many of us have had that experience. In fact, people who experience sexual trauma notice sometimes that their body responds to the experience because it is horrible as it sounds, a sexually relevant stimulus, even though it's not liked or wanted. This is my fifty shades of gray story. Can I tell my fifty yes, shades of gray please. story? Okay. <laughs> so again, I am a reader of romance novels, so there's this first spanking scene, and in a first spanking scene in a romance novel, here's how it's supposed to go. The heroine is supposed to be being spanked and thinking to herself, I know I'm not supposed to like this, but I like it so much. She should be experiencing all kinds of pleasure. And that is not even a little bit what happens here. I read really carefully. There's not one word about her liking it. It just hurts. She's squinching up her face in pain. She's squirming to get away. She doesn't like it. She consented to it, but she doesn't want it, and she doesn't like anything about the experience. And then Christian Grey, hero slash spanker, slash stalker, slash douchebag. What does he do? He puts his fingers in her vagina and says, feel this, Anastasia. See how much your body likes this? You're just... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that was the first time I threw the book against the wall, because what is Christian Grey, hero slash banker slash stalker test douchebag, what does he get wrong there? He thinks that there is some meaningful relationship between the sexually relevant stimulation. Yes, it is absolutely sexually relevant for your sexual and romantic partner to touch your butt. Yes, it absolutely is. Does that mean you want to like it? Turns out, no, there's about a 10% overlap between how a woman's genitals are responding and how aroused she really feels Mm. because her body will respond to anything that's even a little bit sexually relevant probably as a protective mechanism because increased blood flow and lubrication reduces the risk of tearing basically but this can go the other way as well right like where you can be feeling mentally aroused but not be having that general response Absolutely. Just because your body's like, and I have had this question too. Like I was so ready and so into it. And my partner was like, no, you're just being nice. You're still not wet. We have to believe people when they tell us how they feel instead of, and we, and I can't tell you how many people, how many students have written me notes and come up to me and said, they're like, yeah, my partner told me that this is how I felt because this is how my genitals were behaving. And I was like, I must be crazy. I must be wrong. Because the worst thing about that Fifty Shades of Grey story is that Anastasia believes him more than she believes what her own body experience is telling her, which is like the ultimate patriarchy. Women are trained to believe other people's opinions about our bodies more than we believe our bodies ourselves. Yeah. So... 
So learning to, to notice, oh, look, I must be being exposed to a sexually relevant stimulus. All that tells me is what my brain has learned to associate as sexually relevant. And we live in a sufficiently fucked up culture that some of what counts at what is sexually relevant is also unwanted, unliked, violent, but still sexually relevant. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of quick questions that I ask everyone before we wrap up is when it comes to your own personal development, what are you working on learning or implementing right now? It's actually the writing of the romance fiction. Um, I At first I did it because I wanted to like write this wrong that I felt had been done. Um, but as I was writing the second book, I had a day at work when four women separately told me that they had been sexually assaulted. I was the first person they had told. Um, and for me, even for me, four in one day is a bunch. Um, and my usual strategy would have been to like go for a run, then have a bath and a glass of wine. But instead I came home and I wrote the proposal scene. I wrote the gigantic happy ending. And as I was writing it, I felt these four stories like metabolizing inside me and processing and moving out to the happy ending. Cause all I get as the first person they tell is like the trauma of it. I know all four of those women are moving in the direction of healing. I know that they're going to have their own happy endings, but that's not what I receive. But by writing the fiction, by creating a happy ever after in a romance novel, I got to create that for myself. Like neurochemically, my body got to go through the process of healing and getting to a place of joy and discovery. So I have found out that um, the writing fiction is really, really good for me. And the more I do that, uh, the better I feel and the better my nonfiction gets. Wow, that's really cool and powerful. So this could be as serious or as frivolous and silly as you like. What's one thing that you're obsessed with these days that's making your life better? <laughs> um, I have been toying with the idea of uh, making my current novel a werewolf novel. I love it. So, and it, it's the heroine who would be a, a, a werewolf and it would not be moon related at all. It would be like having migraine. She crosses a threshold of stress and poof, migraine, only she turns into a werewolf. So I've been, I've been learning a lot about werewolves lately and it is hilarious and fun. I'm married to a person who's very into the paranormal. He's a comics illustrator. Um, and uh, he's like showing me around the world of werewolves. So it's this fun game that we play together. Amazing. And so as we wrap up, for anyone who feels drawn to, what's the best way to support you and your work? Uh, so reading Come As You Are would be great and telling everyone about it would be spectacular. Um, I'm currently, I have for my own mental health withdrawn from social media in order to avoid any information about the election, mm -hmm. which was making me bananas. But I'm on Twitter at Emily Nagoski um, and at the, um, at, uh, no, it's um, the Emily Foster. Emily Foster is my romance novel name. Um, they can read... Uh, How Not to Fall, which is the first novel. Um, the second one comes out in December if they want to uh, do that. And then I have on my webpage, emilynagoski.com, a calendar and a map of all the places I go. So if you want to see me somewhere, come to a training or an event, uh, you can find it on, a, on the map and on the calendar. And I'm also, you can invite me to come and do a thing wherever. Amazing. So like trainings and stuff. Yeah. So that's it. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode at sarahstars.com slash podcast slash 59. 
Guys, I had such a proud mama moment last week when I found out that the Girl Gang Conversations was number 17 in the iTunes Health Podcast chart. And that is all because of you. Thank you so much for listening, for downloading the show, for sharing it with your friends. And if you did enjoy today's show and you haven't left a rating and review on iTunes yet, perhaps I can convince you to do so. It only takes a few minutes, probably not even that long. And it really does make all the difference in helping us climb those charts so that more people find out about the show and hear these conversations. You can write whatever you want in the review, so why not let me know what you're obsessed with lately or who you'd like me to interview next. Also, if you want to continue the conversation from today's show, please join us in Girl Gang HQ on Facebook. That's our private group for just having conversations like we do on the show, talking about the real nitty-gritty stuff, and yes, we do talk about our sex lives and sexuality a lot, so if you like today's episode, you might want to dive in. Next week's interview is with Diana Valentine. Diana is not for the faint of heart. She spent more than 13 years teaching leaders to listen to themselves in complete, seemingly impossible missions. We're talking major brand overhauls, six-figure product launches, and full-fledged manuscripts. She serves up straight-from-the-hip advice in online magazines and columns all over the internet, and in a past life, she was an idiot savant microsurgery tech, worked for the Olympic Games Organizing Committee, and was personally approached by the FBI with a recruitment invitation, for classified reasons, on two separate occasions. As you can tell, Diana has such an interesting life story, and we had a fantastic conversation about her journey, but also about her big zone of genius, decision-making. We riffed on why decision-making is so damn hard, the super conditions game she's created to make it easier, and why some decision-making systems miss the mark. Until then, grab your girl gang and have a conversation that matters.